Amen. Thank you for the reading of that word. I was at a crossroads moment in my life. I was 20 years old. It was between my junior and senior year of college. And I was a business major at the time. I was studying uh, business. I wanted to make a lot of money and be a successful business person with my life. That was my track. I was a follower of Jesus, but I was, I was wanting to go into, into a place where I could have a, a life that I felt was comfortable. And so as a business major in college, it's a critical summer between your junior and senior year. That's the time to get an internship and to get some kind of professional experience. And I was at a crossroads moment because I was, had two options that had come before me. One option was to get a professional internship with an accounting firm. And they were offering me a substantial hourly wage for the whole summer that would look great on a resume and put a lot of cash in my wallet, frankly. And for a college student, that was very appealing and could potentially set me up for a full-time job. And on the other hand, I was being told by a, a mentor of mine, a Christian mentor, that there was a six-week summer project for a Christian college ministry that was taking place in Senegal, North Africa. And I would have to raise money to go on it. Not be given money to go on it, raise money, send out letters, raise money to go on this trip. And I really, I, I think I knew what I wanted. I wanted to do the internship. But I was being pulled into this tension place of what is the thing that God wants me to do. I don't even think I was actually praying about it. I don't think I was actually asking God what he wanted, but I felt the tension. I felt the crossroad moment. So as we jump into Mark 10 this morning, we're entering into a tension text. And if you've been with us for the last several months, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark chapter by chapter. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And this week we're at 10. Right before next week, when we see Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey to celebrate Palm Sunday, this is the last text we're going to focus on during this season of Lent, during this season of acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our human frailty, acknowledging our limitations as humans. We're going to look at Jesus' encounter with a young, rich ruler. The text in Mark doesn't say he was young, but Matthew and Luke both acknowledge that he was young. And they say that he had many possessions. So we've looked at several things in the last few weeks about who Jesus is. Most recently, last week, Jesus was transfigured on the mountain before Peter, James, and John. And he was showing his disciples the glory of God in himself. He was shining just vividly, amazingly. And this week, Jesus has these encounters in Mark 10 with children, as you see. And then in verse 17... It says, as he was setting out on his journey, again, next week is Palm Sunday. The journey that Jesus is going on in verse 17 is towards Jerusalem, towards Passover, towards the cross, towards death. That's the journey Jesus was setting out on. But before he can start the journey, a man runs up to him, kneels before him, 
and asks him a question. And that's where we jump in today of what Jesus is going to show us about himself today with regards to treasure. With regards to treasure. So this morning, I'm going to move briskly through this text in four waves. Because I think there's, the reason I'm going to give four things here is because there's a, there's a moment of transition between each of these four that is common, that is similar, that I want to pick up on and use this morning. So we're going to look at treasure this morning, and we're going to look to see what Jesus has to say to this young man about treasure. First thing I want to look at, beginning in verse 17, is what I'm going to call the trick of treasure. The trick of treasure. Treasure can play tricks on us as humans. Not can. Treasure does play tricks on us as humans. There's a couple of articles. I found these just without even trying. You just you Google it and you find it very easily. Both of these are from the Washington Post in the last year, 2020. One of them was entitled, quote, The 1% are much more satisfied with their lives than everyone else, survey finds, end quote. It means the, the people with the 1% of people with the most money in the world are more satisfied with their lives than the other 99%. This is what a survey found. Interesting. The other article says, quote, money actually can buy happiness, study finds, end quote. We hear the, the adage all the time, money can't buy happiness. And this article, both of these articles are saying, actually, people that have money seem to be pretty happy. If you have money, you seem to be pretty well off. You seem to be okay. It doesn't seem like people that have money are sad or, or upset with how, as I can't believe I made this much money. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not happy anymore. No, it actually seems like these people are okay. And that itself is the beginning of the trick. The trick of treasure is to trick you and to trick us into thinking that treasure actually equals happiness right away. There's two tricks, I think, in the beginning of this passage. One is the trick of what good is, the nature of goodness. And the other is the trick of what work is, or how work relates to making money, or treasure, or or gaining possessions. So let's look at both of these things here. First, on, on the trick of what goodness is. Look at verse 17 and 18. This young man runs up to Jesus, kneels before him. First word he says, good teacher. He calls him good teacher. And let's just, let's skip the rest of that question for a second. Let's go to how Jesus responds. Because Jesus basically doesn't hear the rest of the question at first. He just latches on to the idea that the man calls him good. He says, why do you, and Jesus responds, why do you call me good? You know, we, we kind of get this trick in our life, I think, of thinking that uh, treasure connects to goodness in a couple of different ways. And here's, here's one confession. And I realize I've mentioned a couple of times in the last few weeks about TV shows that I've been watching. I don't watch a ton of TV, but I just keep using them in sermons. So here we go. The latest TV show I was watching this past week was a, a New York City property selling show. So they were these people with these big New York City apartments were selling their, their big spaces for a lot of money. And all these brokers or people that were trying to sell these rich Uh, properties, I just was getting really upset with them. They just came across as really snooty, kind of, you know, I'm better than you kind of people. And I told Sarah, she was sitting next to me, I said, I just really kind of want to punch one of these guys in the face. Like they just, they're coming across really snooty to me. 
And I, I caught myself, because I'm reading this text in the same week, and saying, wow, it's easy for people that, that don't have a ton of money, especially comparatively, to someone who does, to look at them and say, wow, that's a really wicked person. Or that person's really standoffish. And that's something I needed to repent of at that moment. So goodness gets tied up here. And here, here's the opposite side, I think, of it. When the young man goes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, I think he's making an assumption that Jesus is better or good because he doesn't have a lot of stuff. Because he's been living kind of this uh, wandering lifestyle. He's not attached to possessions. This young man, I think, felt a little guilty that he had a lot of money. And therefore, he looked at the spirituality of a wise sage like Jesus and said, wow, you're good. I've even had these encounters as a pastor before where I'll be talking to a really wealthy person and they they speak very reverently to me as if I'm more inherently good because I've given up something to be a pastor. You know, I'm not I'm not poor. I'm not, you know, living I'm not like I'm Mother Teresa, you know. But there's this there's this disconnect between possessions and goodness that we kind of build in. It's one of the tricks. Jesus says, Why do you call me good? This man had built a construct of morality on the basis of riches. And that's actually kind of a very Eastern way of looking at it. This idea of spiritual people empty themselves to help others, whereas non-spiritual people just gain things and live for the world. And it's not quite that clear cut. And Jesus cuts into that right away with the nature of goodness. As we prayed earlier, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That's one trick on what good is. Jesus jumps right at that. The second trick is what work is. And you see the man say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? What is it that I have to work at, Jesus? Give me a task, I'll accomplish it, and then I'll have eternal life, right? And the trick here is Jesus, is is the man saying, treasure and how hard you work go hand in hand. And this is one that I think as Americans we've been taught from from childbirth, right, right from the beginning. You've heard the phrase, if you work hard enough, you can do anything with life, in life. And it doesn't take long to figure out that that's not always the case. You can work really hard and still not be successful, especially spiritually, especially spiritually. The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus uh, goes into the Ten Commandments in verse 19. He plays along with the question, and he starts quoting these commandments. And, and this is surely what the man was hoping for. He says, I just hope Jesus answers the question this way. Because the man's like, I've kept all these from my youth. He, you could tell he just was ready to say that. Please, Jesus, just say the Ten Commandments, and I can say I've done all those. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus names some of the commandments. He doesn't list all ten. He just lists numbers uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And the man says, I've kept all those from my youth. He thinks that this is why Jesus has come here. That this is why he came with the question. He was maybe thinking that this was going to get, he was going to get a major pat on the back from the Messiah. Almost like a, Jesus, can you just validate me that because I've kept these commandments, I'm going to be okay? That I'm going to get eternal life? And Jesus is going to turn the tables on him here. In verses 18 and 19, he says, you know, the commandments and he mentions them here. And the man says, I've kept all these from my youth. I'm going to save the next part for the next section. 
But just look at the tricks here that's happening. The trick of treasure is goodness and work. Treasure is connected to how good or moral I am. Treasure is connected to how hard I work. And that's the trick that plays with us as well. The trick that gets into us. Again, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That's the trick of treasure. Number two, again, I'm going to go fast. The threat of treasure. First was the trick of treasure. Now we're looking at the threat of treasure. And this is where we start to see Jesus pressing in on the rich young ruler here. Treasure is a threat to our spirituality. And Jesus has no problems going this, going this route. If you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about money quite a bit. He likes to press in on the money issue because he knows that it gets to our deepest heart very easily. And I would say even especially in modern times. We live in a capitalistic world where the more you can benefit yourself, the more social standing you have. And Jesus knows that this easily draws us away from Christ. So Jesus says, one thing you lack. Again, the man says, I've kept all these from my youth. But Jesus says, one thing that you lack. And he gives it four parts. One thing you lack, broken up into four parts. You know, we have these, these great statements in the Bible. We have the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's known as the great commandment. You're going to hear a sermon on that in a couple of weeks during our missions conference. There's the great commission, which you're going to hear a sermon about in our missions conference in a few weeks, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. I think you could name this passage the great consignment, just to pick up on the great theme. The great commandment, the great commission. Jesus is giving this man the great consignment. He says, go. Sounds like the great commission also. Go, sell all that you have, Give to the poor. I have a promise here for you that if you do that, you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. Follow me. And the promise is that you'll have treasure in heaven. The great consignment, you could say. That's the threat that Jesus here is giving. And it says here in verse 22, the man went away. Again, I'm looking at the ESV. The man went away disheartened by the saying. Maybe you have a different version that you're reading, but I looked into this word disheartened this week, and this is where I picked up on the word threatened. Because really the original word here has this idea of the man was threatened by what Jesus was saying. The only other place in the New Testament where that word's used is when Jesus talks about the skies turning dark and getting threatening, like a, like a looming storm coming, a dark clouds. That's kind of what was happening in this man's views. Like the dark clouds began to come. He began to be threatened by what Jesus was saying because he knew he had many possessions. He knew he had many possessions and therefore he went away sorrowful. He was threatened by what Jesus says. So what's so threatening about treasure? Number one, Jesus is saying your treasure is not yours to keep. And again, allow yourself to be threatened by what Jesus is saying to the man here. Your treasure is not yours to keep. What? I get a job and I get a paycheck and I buy things that are good for me. And, and Jesus, you're saying that's not mine to keep? 
It's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, sell it all. He's asking the man to give it up. I do need to say here, this is not a blanket statement. So you can still be a Christian and go home today and not sell all your belongings. So you don't need to go home today and put all your things on Facebook Marketplace or sell everything. And the reason I can say that is because Jesus has an encounter with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. And Zacchaeus says he's convicted by Jesus because he's rich. He has a lot of wealth. And Zacchaeus says, okay, I'm going to give away half of all my possessions and restore fourfold to all those that I've defrauded. And you know what Jesus says to Zacchaeus? Today, salvation has come to your house. He only gives away half of his stuff. So this isn't a blanket statement, but Jesus knows your heart. And Jesus knows my heart. And Jesus knows what pulls at your strings. And he knows that for Zacchaeus to give up half and to restore fourfold was enough. And for this rich young ruler, he knew that giving it all up was what was required. Ask Jesus what he's asking you to give up. What does it mean for you to be generous? That's the first thing here about threatening. Your treasure is not yours to keep. Secondly, Jesus is saying that what you do with your treasure is not up to you to decide. You actually don't get to make the decision about what you do with your money. And this is a good thing here because we have offering plates in the back. We have online giving. There's charities you can give to. And we like to think through, okay, what, what, can, I, what can I give to? What would be the best decision about how I can give my money? Even if I want to be generous, what's the best way to do it? And what Jesus is saying here is, that's actually my decision. That's Jesus's decision. Ask me, and I'll tell you what the decision is. And that's a little threatening to say, Jesus, I'm trusting you with the decision of what I'm going to do with my money, with my money. Jesus is saying, it's actually, it was my money first. It was my treasure first that I gave to you. And now I want you to ask me what, what to do with it. And he'll give you the answer. He'll give you the answer. And it's different for everyone. Last threat here. Jesus is saying that your treasure is actually being kept somewhere else for you. Your treasure is not in your wallet. Your true treasure. It's not in your wallet. It's not in your bank account. It's not in your 401k. It's not kept under the mattress. It's not buried in a field somewhere behind your house. I don't know where you keep your treasure, but it's not there. That's not your true treasure. Jesus says in verse 21, your true treasure is in heaven. And Peter, 1 Peter says, you have an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. It's waiting there for you. It's in heaven's bank account. That's your true treasure. It's far away. It's it's kept just for you. It's got your name on it. And you just have to go co-sign for it. Jesus is going to give, give you the treasure, and it's for you. All this is a little bit threatening. And to hear a pastor speak to you about your money, you're like, what are you doing, Stephen? And I agree with you. It's kind of hard to speak on money. But Jesus loves to speak on money. And he's pretty direct here with what he's saying. That's the trick and the threat of treasure. Now we're going to look at the thrill of treasure. Because you see this building up, Jesus talking with the young man, and then the disciples kind of come in. And guess what, guess what the disciples are feeling? They are super excited about this conversation that's happening on the side. They're like, guys, Jesus is talking to a really rich guy, and he's saying 
that he needs to give away all of his money or else he can't, he can't go to heaven. That's really good news for us. It says here a couple of times, it says they were amazed at what he was, at his words, and it says they were exceedingly astonished. They were thrilled about the progress of this conversation. You know, it's, it's really thrilling to have a lot of money, to have possessions. Think about the first time you ever received a paycheck or money for your first job or your first professional job or you deposited money into a retirement account and you're like, wow, I think I can actually make this work. This actually may work out for me. Think about the thrill of that. Or the first time you, you bought a car or bought a house. The thrill of having stuff is a, is a great thought. But what the disciples get a thrill at from this is starting to get an, a, a glimpse as to how God's economy works. God's economy is different than capitalism. God's economy is different than socialism. God's economy is different than all these debates we have about how money works and how to make money and how to save it and how to invest it. If you read the the parables that Jesus gives about money, it's always upside down, backwards, inside out. And we're going to finish with a statement that the last will be first and the first will be last. And that's kind of the summary statement. But what's so thrilling about what Jesus says about treasure? Number one is that he says in verse 23, or in response to verse 23, that having wealth determines nothing spiritually. That however much money or possessions or wealth you have in this life actually has no direct correlation to your spiritual life. And again, think about how excited that would have made the disciples. These are poor guys for the most part. There were a couple of people in there that had means. But think about the fishermen, the ones who didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of means, didn't have a lot of possessions. They had to be getting excited about this. And it says they were amazed at his words because Jesus talks about how difficult it is for rich people to enter heaven. Wealth determines nothing spiritually. And that includes rich people. Jesus says nothing is impossible with God, which means Even a rich person can enter heaven, can enter into the kingdom of God. He's just talked about how difficult it is, how it's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. Or as one person I read this week, it's kind of like trying to grab all the ocean water into one water bottle. It's, It's ridiculously hard. It's impossible. But Jesus says, guys, nothing is impossible for me. Nothing is impossible for God. Which means that if you're rich, you can still get into heaven if you have the right heart. And he says, if you're poor, you can get into heaven because it doesn't matter about your money. It's about the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the disciples were amazed at that. Secondly, riches cannot buy heaven. If you have a lot of money today, you can buy anything. You can go out to a store. You can go on Amazon. You can buy happiness. That's what we learned from those articles earlier. Jesus says you cannot buy happiness. You cannot buy the kingdom of heaven. And it says they were exceedingly astonished at this. Exceedingly astonished. Again, think about how much the disciples had at their disadvantage. How much they had been maybe treated unjustly because of rich people, tax collectors, Roman emperors, soldiers. All these people had means and possessions and wealth. Think about how often they they were pressed down on because they didn't have a lot. And Jesus is saying, guys... You can't buy heaven. Heaven is for the heart. 
Heaven is for the pure in spirit. This is what true life is. So finally, because they were exceedingly astonished, verse 26, they say, all right, Jesus, spill the beans. Who can be saved then? If the rich people have a hard time entering heaven, and we've kind of been trained that poor people don't have much of a social standing, who then can be saved? It feels like no one can, Jesus. Tell us the answer. And Jesus, gazing at their faces, gazing at their faces. Look at verse 26, verse 27, excuse me. Jesus looked at them, which really means he just gave them a deep gaze into their face. He looked at them and said, let's go back in reverse for a second. Look at when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler. He says, Jesus, I've kept all these things from my youth. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at the rich young ruler, gazing at his face, he loved him. Everything that follows is out of love for this rich young man. And now looking at verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, verse 23, Jesus looked around at his disciples. Again, same word. Jesus gazed around at everybody that was listening. Jesus knows how hard this money talk is. And each time he makes a transition into a deeper point, he looks around, kind of like how I'm looking around at each of you, except purely from the heart of Jesus. He looks at them, he loves them, he sees their heart, and he says, who can be saved? And he gives the answer here in verse 27. He looked at them and he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. Peter said to him, see, look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time will receive it all back in the age to come. What's the truth about treasure? This is the last point. The trick of treasure, the threat of treasure, the thrill of treasure. Jesus finally finishes with the truth about treasure. And the truth about treasure is it's all about generosity. It's all about what we prayed about earlier. First truth is that everyone is saved by grace alone. It doesn't matter how much you have, how little you have, how hard you work, how good you are. Everyone is saved by grace. And that is impossible. It's impossible for humanity to be saved apart from grace. The grace of Jesus is sufficient to save any person. And that's what he starts with. That's what he starts with. Who Who then can be saved? Anybody can be saved because of his grace. Second truth, treasure is only powerful when it's given up. You can only unlock, unlock the true power of treasure or money or possessions when it's given for the sake of others. Jesus says, if you give it up for my sake and for the gospel, for my sake and for the gospel, that's the core. That phrase is mentioned one other place in the, in the gospel of Mark, and you know where it is. We did it three weeks ago in Mark 8. It says, whoever would come after me may deny himself. Whatever, he would lose his life to gain his life for my sake in the gospel. 
Whoever would lose their life for my sake in the gospel, they will find their life. It's this backwards mentality. To give yourself up in generosity is to unlock the true power of treasure. The third truth is, as my my youngest daughter uh, discovered this week, is that Jesus is the one and only true treasure of the world. And that's what he's pointing out in this passage. The treasure that's kept in heaven is Jesus. He is the inheritance. My, my, so my daughter and I were listening. They, they, they like to listen to Jesus songs, as they say. Daddy, can you turn on Jesus songs, whether in the car or at home? And so we were listening to a song this week, and this is what the words were. This is my daughter. She's going to be four in two weeks. Quote, this is the song. Should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. And you know what Clara said to me? Daddy, Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Amen, Clara. She is. Jesus is the treasure. He is the good news. He's the one that you go and buy, you sell everything and buy the field because you found the treasure that's buried there. Mark 13, that's the parable. He's the one where you go and you give everything you have. You put everything in the offering plate for him because he is the one true treasure. You think about the widow. So all these people were putting their money into the, into the pot. And the widow comes and puts a couple of copper coins, the equivalent of one penny. And Jesus says, that person has given more than everyone else. Fourth truth, the one treasure wants to give you everything. Look at the, look at the, re- the reciprocal nature of what Jesus gives back here. He says, if you give it all up, you're going to receive it all a hundredfold. The one treasure wants to give you everything from his abundant heart. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave, us up, gave himself up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? If we give up for Jesus, we're going to receive it all in glory when we're with him in eternity. And the last point here, this is our takeaway. And again, this is not coercive at all today from me. This is from Jesus, but the fifth truth here is that Jesus the treasure, if Jesus is the treasure, that means that he alone can create a generous heart. If you make Jesus your treasure, that will transform you into a generous giver who will trust in him purely and love him with your full heart. For a follower of Jesus, I truly believe that generosity actually finds you out. I don't think you go looking to be a generous, giving person. I think when you give yourself over to Jesus, his generosity actually finds you and infuses you and changes your heart so that you just become generous. And you look back and say, wow, I can't believe that I joyfully want to give myself for this. And that's what happened to me. That crossroad moment that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon I had these two options. I really wanted the professional job, actually, and I was offered it, but I never felt content with that. I never felt like that's what God opened for me. And so I ended up going to Senegal, to North Africa, for six weeks in the middle of my junior and senior year to serve as a pioneering mission group to minister to college students in this majority Muslim country. And we shared the gospel with students almost every day on that trip. We went out to villages and put up projector screens and showed the Jesus film. And one night on that 
on, on, while we were showing the Jesus film, they, our, our team leaders asked if I would share my testimony, my story of how I came to know Jesus and what he's done in my life. And I started sharing my story, and it was translated from my English into French and from my translated French into the local tribal language. And from there, those people heard the words of what Jesus had done in my life. And it's that singular night that I can look back to and say, that's the night that Jesus changed my heart from wanting to be a business person who made money and had a comfortable life to, I want to be a minister of the gospel. I don't know what that means, but I want to give my life for Jesus and do this as much as I can. And that began a journey of, that was 12 years ago, of finding myself to a place like this. And that may not be your journey. That may not be your story. But God will change your heart to be a generous person because he is generous from his depths of his heart. And so we're going to sing to conclude today's service, Take My Life and Let It Be. We're going to sing all six verses and just let this soak into our hearts this morning. And so uh, I invite you to stand as we finish, as we sing, Take My Life and Let It Be. Because as as Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing, including being generous. So let this be your prayer as we finish today. Amen.